you so much, uh, Barry. It's just wonderful to be with you here today. Uh, isn't it a fantastic time of year, summer? We can enjoy lots of barbecues. We can get out of the heat of the kitchen, get outside and put some sausages on the barbecue. And apparently there are two things that we should never discuss at barbecues. Politics and religion. Personally, I love talking about both. So if you want to talk to me about that afterwards, catch up with me over a coffee. My own experience, I find it's far more likely that we won't talk about money. There was one exception many years ago. I had a good mate who didn't have any shame at all. Oh, David, what are you earning this year? Or how much did your house cost? But the Bible has plenty to say about all of these topics, religion, politics, and money, many others as well. And we cannot help but deal with the issue of money in today's passage. Money has such a powerful hold on so many of us in society today. And for Christians even, this can be the hardest thing to surrender in following Jesus. So tightly we cling to our money. I worked hard for it. It's my money. But today, I'm here to reassure you. I am not after your money. I do not need a gold-plated Learjet for ministry. Rather, we're looking at what the Bible says about what should be our heart's attitude towards money and the issue of giving. And the stunning thing in the New Testament is that it's not about the duty of tithing at all. Jesus has something far more radical in mind. And when we grasp this, it'll transform our hearts and it'll transform our lives. It will lead us into an incredible joy that astonishes the world. And that is my prayer for all of us here today. That we would be transformed by this truth so that we might live in the abundance of joy that God intends for each one of us. So I think we need to ask for God's help through the Spirit to help us to grasp this word today. Let's just briefly pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the gospel. We pray that you would fill our hearts with joy by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray that you convict us in our hearts and encourage us and transform us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're resuming our series in 2 Corinthians. Widen your hearts. And this stems from the appeal Paul gives in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13. That the Corinthians would open their hearts to Jesus, first and foremost. That the Corinthians would open their hearts and widen their hearts to Paul. And that the Corinthians would especially open their hearts and widen their hearts to one another. Now, Corinth was a fabulously wealthy city. It was at the crossroads of some major trading routes. And along with its riches, it was a typically pagan city. They had lots of different idol worship, the usual pleasure-seeking pursuits of the ancient world. And in the midst of all this hedonism and wealth, Paul preached the gospel and established a thriving church there. In fact, 18 reveals that Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth. And what a church there was at Corinth. Had so many issues. They had issues of factions and disunity. They tolerated ungodliness in their midst, which Paul had to rebuke them over. They were wondering how the spiritual gifts were meant to be used in building up the church and not selfishly. 
Now, thankfully for us, because of all these issues, Paul wrote two letters that are recorded for us in the New Testament. And Paul was sometimes very direct and blunt with the Corinthians, and he had to be. But Paul was a little bit worried. How would they respond to his hard words? Would they reject Paul and his rebuke? Or would they humbly accept his words as from the Lord? So Paul thought, I better check out what's happening before I arrive. He sent off one of his trusted offsiders, Titus, to see how they were going. And in the immediate preceding chapter to today's reading, we see in chapter 7 the joy that Paul felt when Titus returned. He was over the moon. They had a godly sorrow that led to repentance. Titus reported how earnest they were to honour God in every area of their lives. And Paul rejoiced because he knew that all of us have to fight for joy. To fight for joy from turning away from worthless sin that only brings misery. And so this brings us to today's passage. And I encourage you to keep 2 Corinthians 8 open in front of you. Verse 1. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been given amongst the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy... And their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Macedonia was a province just to the north of Corinth. It included the cities of Thessalonica, Philippi, Berea. We know from Acts 16 and 17 that uh, there were vibrant churches planted there by Paul. There are two issues with these Macedonian churches, though. Firstly, they suffered continued and severe persecution. If you want to, you can look at it up in 1 Thessalonians 1.6 and 2.14, 2 Thessalonians 1.5. They suffered for the gospel. There was a cost to proclaiming Jesus as Lord and his good news for the kingdom. Secondly, though, these congregations were by no means wealthy. Verse 2 talks about the extreme poverty that they lived in. These cities were not as wealthy as Corinth. It's very possible that some of the Christians were ostracised in their businesses because of their faith in Jesus. So the Macedonians were suffering. They were suffering financially. And yet, we read that the abundance of their joy overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Now that just doesn't make sense to me. What is going on here? How is this even possible? How could they be so joyful in the midst of suffering? And if they were living in extreme poverty, how could they be so generous? Let's continue to read in verse 3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favour or grace of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. I find this astonishing. They were begging for the favour of giving beyond their means. And we start to get a few clues about what this offering is all about. Paul was collecting voluntary gifts from Christians 
to support the Jewish believers suffering back in Jerusalem. They were copying it from both sides. The Jewish believers were copying it from the other Jews as well as the Romans. Plus, on top of all of that, they had the severe effects of a famine that had occurred a few years earlier. Almost a year earlier, Paul had written his first letter to the Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians 16, we read this in verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, that is Christians, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. When I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So you can see that as Paul was going around, all the Gentile churches, he was saying, you know what, guys, it would really show our love for our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem to help them out in their time of need. This relates back to an earlier account in Acts 11, verse 27, when Paul was returning to Jerusalem. Now, in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over the whole world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers and sisters living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. We cannot forget, even though Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, he always preached the gospel to the Jews first. In every city he went to, he would go to the synagogue and reason from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And so Paul was incredibly earnest about unity in the early church. He wanted to honour those Jews who believed Jesus was their Messiah. And so not just spiritually... But materially as well, he wanted to bless them, suffering as they were in Jerusalem. He wanted to help bring about unity between Jewish and Gentile believers. And so what Paul was encouraging the Corinthians to do was to set aside money on the first day of the week for this specific collection. Verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 8, Paul continues, Accordingly, we urged Titus... That as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace as well. I think we're seeing this recurring theme that giving is an act of grace. Now, grace is the most beautiful diamond in the vast treasure of God's kingdom rule. Indeed, R.C. Sproul says that the very essence of all theology is grace. The heart of the gospel is grace. What is grace? Grace is simply an extravagant gift that we do not deserve. Back in verse 1, we read that the grace of God was given to the Macedonian churches. In verse 4, we see that the Macedonians begged for the favour 
which should be translated grace, of sharing in the relief of the saints. Here in verses 6 and 7, we read Paul describing giving as an act of grace. Now, the saints in Jerusalem, they didn't do anything to deserve this collection. They were utterly helpless. They were at the mercy mercy of their persecutors. They were still enduring the after-effects of famine. They desperately needed grace. And so Paul uses the astonishing example of the Macedonians to challenge the Corinthians. He appealed to their desire to excel in every way for the glory of God, to excel in the act of grace that giving is as well. I think Paul would very much like us here as a congregation to be like the Corinthians in this way, to excel in our faith in Jesus, to excel in how we speak to one another, to excel in our knowledge of God, to excel in our earnestness in holy living, to especially excel in our love, in our love for God, in our love for one another, in our love for our neighbours around us. And finally, to excel in giving as well. Indeed, Paul makes the point that by excelling in our giving, we provide the evidence of our love for Jesus and his followers in verse 8. And this brings us to the very heart of the message. I'm sorry it's taken so long to get to this point. But what motivates impoverished, suffering believers to beg for the privilege of giving beyond their means? What would motivate them to do that? And the answer is found in verse 9, as Cole reminded us of earlier. For you know the grace... Of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. These are extraordinary words. Let these words sink deep into our soul. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. The eternal God, the Son, dwelling in the glory and majesty and beauty of heaven, in perfect fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit, literally had everything. He was richer beyond our comprehension. Everything in all creation was subject to him. The vastness of the universe, the magnificence of the dwelling place of God, the source of all wisdom and knowledge and beauty and art and music and laughter and joy. He was rich. Now, I can't help but make a reference to politics. Donald Trump is rich. He boasts about how rich he is. But he is poor compared to the riches of heaven that Jesus enjoyed. I really can't see him giving up all his wealth unless there's a work of grace in his life. But why would anyone give up the riches of heaven? And why would anyone give this up for ungrateful, pathetic little rebels 
who despise God and ignore him, who arrogantly shake their fists, their puny little fists to heaven, who constantly scheme of new ways to please themselves. Why would anyone give up the riches of heaven? The Son of God chose to come into this world in the most abject poverty. To give you an idea of the difference, uh, we've all seen poverty on TV, but it's not until you're immersed in it that you realise how wretched it is. It's just wretched. We lived in India for a couple of years and we were shocked that people lived under a tarpaulin by the side of a road. Think of it. The heat, the dust, the noise, the lack of safety under a tarp. But in a similar way, this is what Jesus embraced by giving up the riches of heaven coming to earth. And in the ultimate consequence of poverty, he chose death in the worst possible manner upon the cross. Why? Why would the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, Jesus, do this? And the answer is ridiculous. So that we might become rich. So that we might share in the glory and majesty and beauty and joy of the Creator in His creation forever. This is grace. The Macedonians got grace. They understood grace. They understood why grace is all about the great exchange, life instead of death, riches instead of poverty, righteousness instead of sin. What an extravagant gift we do not deserve. Have we grasped the enormity of the riches of God's grace in Jesus? Can we declare that Jesus is our Lord Jesus Christ? Because, friends, this is the key to joyfully and sacrificially giving, even in the midst of suffering. Now, at this point, we should note that this verse does not justify a prosperity doctrine. That somehow this verse would promise us that we'll all have a mansion We'll all have a Mercedes. We'll all go on overseas holidays, first class every year. Folly. Foolishness to think that this is all this verse is referring to by riches. This verse has a far more eternal perspective of true riches. Riches that will last. Riches that will truly satisfy the deepest longings of our soul. And so in light of God's grace and the good news of Jesus... Given the example of the Macedonians, Paul encourages the Corinthians to participate also in this grace of giving. The key thing to note in verses 11 and 12 is the willingness of the heart to give according to what they had. It's never about how much we give, but how generous we are in giving of what we do have. Generosity is the key. I think of the widow at the temple who gave two small copper coins. And yet, what did Jesus say about this precious widow? That she gave more than the rich who threw in huge amounts of coins just to show. Would have made a huge noise. Oh, look at me. I'm so generous. Jesus said that widow gave more than all of those rich people. God 
looks at the heart. The final point that Paul makes here about this offering, this specific one-off offering for Jerusalem, is that it's all about fairness. It's about equality. In the economy of God's kingdom, everything belongs to God anyway. We're simply the managers, the stewards of what he has given us to enjoy. And so it's the family of God here at North Pine, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are called to generously look out for one another. But not just here in this congregation. Further afield, our brothers and sisters in Syria and Iraq, Bangladesh and India, Thailand and Cambodia, we are called to be generous to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 13, for I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, whoever gathered little had no lack. Just as everyone during the Exodus had all the manna they needed, no matter how much they collected, the critical point is that everyone was provided for. Galatians 16 is such a wonderful verse. It says this, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, but especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Well, what application can we draw from this passage? After all, it's crystal clear that the context is about a specific collection for Jewish believers suffering in Jerusalem. It's not talking about the local giving in the context of the local congregation every week. Indeed, I would argue that Christians are not obligated to tithe in the New Testament. It is not an obligation. Rather, what is encouraged is a spirit of generosity that honours God with the money that he provides for us. So for some people, this will mean far more than 10% in giving to the work of the Lord. For others, depending on what they have, 10% might be a goal to work towards in faith. There's no obligation in the New Testament to give 10%. So how does this all relate to us today in 2017? First up, we really need to acknowledge that many people are under great financial pressure today. The cost of everything is going up all the time. Wages are not keeping pace with inflation. It's getting harder and harder to make ends meet. Whether we're single, we have a family, we're on a pension, rent's not getting any cheaper. Mortgage stress is a real thing. Job security is unsettling. Many people are going from contract to contract. Who knows what will happen in the economy in the year ahead? So we need to be very wise in managing the finances that we have and using a budget to minimise any stress. But I think there's some incredibly important principles that we learn in today's passage. Firstly, Paul's advice to set aside some money for our offering on the first day of the week is incredibly wise. Before we allocate any income elsewhere, we first set aside money for the Lord's work. Just sensible. Secondly, even though this passage doesn't specifically talk about giving to the ministry of the local church, there are multiple instances of this elsewhere. I'll just give you only two examples amongst many. 
Uh, back in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 14, Paul makes it clear that the Lord himself commanded those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9.14, the Lord himself commanded that. 1 Timothy 5.17, again, this is the case for those elders and pastors whose main role is preaching and teaching. Very, very, very clear. Thirdly, this passage shows us, though, that our giving should not only be for the local congregation. So heartening to see people supporting the work of Arana House, the Carinity Shelter there, to help out our local chaplains as they work with kids and families going through tough times at Underba and elsewhere. So encouraging to hear of people generously supporting Baptist World Aid, supporting our missionaries, sponsoring children overseas. Such a blessing to hear of people contributing to the needs of refugees especially Christian refugees escaping persecution. But the big point this passage makes is the key to joyful, sacrificial giving is experiencing the grace of God. This is what motivated the Macedonian believers to beg for the privilege of partnering in the collection for the saints despite their poverty and their suffering. It just blows my mind. And this can only happen when the Holy Spirit makes the gospel come alive in the very core of our being. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit to make it real in our lives. So I just want to ask all of us, including myself, a few questions today. What is your heart attitude to money. Think about it. What is your heart attitude to money? Are you ready and willing to sacrificially give as you are able? Remember the widow with two copper coins. Or do you grudgingly give out of a sense of obligation? Only you know what's in your heart. But our answer reveals the extent to which we get grace. Our answer to those questions about money reveals the extent to which we get grace. I plead with all of you, don't rob yourselves of the inexpressible joy of the grace of God by clinging too tightly to your money. To do so will rob you of joy. We're going to move into a time of communion, and I invite the communion stewards up now. And as we move into this time of sharing around the communion table, I'd like to repeat 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Ephesians 1.3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. 
My friends, this is true wealth. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Our Lord Jesus himself instituted this meal using very simple elements here of bread and grape juice to remember his body given for us. His blood poured out to inaugurate the new covenant. But we are urged in 1 Corinthians 11 to examine ourselves and to not treat this lightly. So we're going to take a moment to draw near to God through his spirit, confessing our sin and taking hold of the complete forgiveness he freely offers to all of us who come to him in repentance and faith. Let's just take a time quietly to do business with God and then I will pray. Father God, we do thank you so much for what it cost for us to be reconciled to you 